You know, Mark, you got me thinking about Billy Graham a little bit. I, um, on Netflix the other day, there's a one-hour documentary on the life of Billy Graham. And if you want to be inspired, uh, for someone who loves Jesus and just simply wanted to get the gospel out there and how God brought that about through his life, it's an amazing story. George Beverly Shea is one of the people that worked alongside Billy Graham for many years. And it's incredible how many people heard the gospel because he was just faithful to do what God asked him to do. And it wasn't about fame, although he was able to be, have a ministry in the life of every president from Harry Truman up through today, President Trump, before he passed away. That is profound to me, that they called upon him to come and hear him and pray with them and give them counsel from the Word of God. So, wow. That's inspirational. Good lessons from a bad example. We're going to be in Luke 16, verses 1 to 13 today. This is a challenging passage to teach for a couple of reasons. Number one, as I was studying it, all the commentaries basically said the same thing. This is the most difficult parable of Jesus to figure out. Um, okay, good. I like that. I like a challenge. Don't get me wrong. Why is that? Because it se he seems to take a very negative, bad example, a character, and turn it around in, in only in the way that Jesus, the master storyteller, could do to teach a good lesson to his disciples. He tweaks it in such a way to do that. A bad, bad person, but yet we can learn something good from this person. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, I want you to be like him. Hmm? I want you to be like this bad manager. Really? Okay, Jesus, we're going to learn a little bit about that today. We can learn something valuable for somebody that's now, he's also going to say there's some things that we need to learn not to do from his example, but he's going to take one positive thing, be like him in this one area. It also deals with the issue of money, okay? How's that? There's three things in our culture that we don't like to talk about in the public sphere. Money, politics, sex. Those three things. From our pulpits, we don't like to talk about three things. Money, <laughs> politics, and sex. Those three things. But God's Word talks about all three things. Jesus, in his parables, there's probably about 40 parables, give or take. There's debate as to whether some stories are parables or not parables. But there's about 40 of them in the Gospels. Approximately one-third of his parables had to do with the issue of money and possessions. So in Jesus' mind, money and possessions are a pretty important thing. And he devoted a lot of his time teaching on that subject. So today... We're going to deal with a difficult parable on the issue of money and possessions. So that's my challenge this morning. As Roger called me this week and he said, what passage are you preaching on so that I can kind of tie in my talk with that? And I said, it really does tie in well because it has to do with stewardship and what we do with our money. And so there's a very clear relationship. And then just before the sermon, I was talking with Roger and he's like, we need to do some explaining of this parable. Um, I read it, and I'm like, what is going on? Is Jesus commending us to be like that 
manager, that bad manager in this chapter? What's going on? And I said, well, I had to do some of that digging myself and asking. So let's look at the parable first. It's in the first eight verses. And then we'll look at Jesus and what he wants us to learn from this parable. Good lessons from a bad example. So the first eight verses, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, "Uh uh-oh, what shall I do now? I've been caught. My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450, 50% off. Deal today if you sign off on this one right now. Do it. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Wow. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. 20% discount for you. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Hmm. Interesting parable. Let's look at the parable first, and then we'll look at the lessons that we're supposed to learn from this. First of all, the audience. It's always important to know who is this story directed to. It's to his disciples. Last week, at the beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, there were tax collectors and sinners there. There were Pharisees and teachers of the law there. That was his audience, right? So he tells the parable of two sons, interestingly enough. He tied it in with the two groups of people that were there as his audience. There were the younger brother types, and there were the older brother types. Hmm. So today, it's, there's something that he wants us to get, his disciples, the 12 there, but for us today. In verse 14, there's a secondary, kind of a secondary. Right, look down at 14 real quick. It says, the Pharisees who love money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus, scoffing, sneering. That word literally means to stick up your nose. You know, we we have that expression in our culture, looking down your nose at people. Well, they were lifting their nose up in pride and going, we're too good to hear this. The Pharisees were the secondary audience. The disciples were his primary audience. They heard... Jesus is going to tell them a parable, too, at the end of chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. That's directed more their direction. In this parable, there's two main characters. There's the rich man or the master, as he's referred to later on in the passage. This man is very wealthy. He manages his estate from a distance. He basically hands over the management of this business, lucrative business, to this manager. Um, We also see in the story that he's owed massive amounts. And so he entrusts this manager. I mean, he's putting a lot of trust in this man and incredible risk, is there not? 
to give away your business basically and say, I want you to just run it for me. The manager is the second character in this parable. The word manager there literally means law of the house. What he said went in regards to the business. It's the law of the house. He managed crops, land, debts, resources, everything. He conducted the business on behalf of the rich business owner, the master. So, he was entrusted with a lot, but word got out that he was wasting the master's money. That word wasting is squandering. It's the same word, if you go back into chapter 15, verse 13, that was used of the younger prodigal son. When he got his dad's estate, he went away to a far country and he wasted all of that money. It's the same word here. We basically have irresponsibility, incompetence, and basically criminal behavior here. He is stealing, squandering, wasting this man's money. It is not his. It is the master's money. So the master in verse 2 says, I want you to give an account. (laughs) It's an interesting thing going on here. I want you to close out the books. I want you to bring to me what we have in, in our accounts. He didn't say you're fired right now. He probably should have, quite honestly. This is really a bad policy if you think about it. Okay, I hear you're wasting all my money and you're being dishonest with my money, so I'm going to give you some time to close out the books. Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. He should have said, you're out of here and bring in somebody to clean up the mess, right? But he allowed this person some time to clear the books a little bit. In verses 3 to 7, we have this plan. In verse 3, the manager's going, uh-oh. <laughs> and he's thinking to himself, and Luke does this a lot in the book of Luke, he gives us a, a view into the mind of the person. And he's asking himself, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm caught. I'm in a heap of trouble. I'm, I've lost my job, basically. What can I do? I need to come up with a plan here. He's lost his job. With that comes his income. He's lost his house. And that's going to come into play here in this parable because he would have lived on the estate of this wealthy owner. So he's going to become homeless here pretty quickly. And he also has lost his reputation. Remember last week we talked about honor and shame? In Mideastern culture, honor and shame is an important thing. It's a reputation issue here. When he he lost his job and his status of who he was, now there's going to be dishonor because he's getting fired for reasons that are his own fault because he's wasting his boss's money. In verse 3, he basically says, I'm unable to dig. He has physical limitations. Maybe he's lazy. We don't know. But he says, I don't want to do physical labor. On the other side, he says, I'm unwilling to go out and beg for my money. That's below me. So there's kind of a social or a psychological reason why this is going to be a problem. So here's what he says in verse 4. Here's his plan. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. I need to look out for my future here. I'm losing my house, literally. I need to do something so that people 
will for some reason welcome me into their house. They'll have a place to live. I'll have food to eat. I'll have dinner provided for me. So he's thinking ahead for the future. He's prov- his provision for the future here. So I know what I'll do. I'll go discount debts of those that owe my masters some money. He's doing this for a couple reasons. Number one, to ingratiate, to get on people's good side. He can't afford to have any enemies here. He needs to start winning some friends. So he's going to discount some debts here to get on people's good side, but also to obligate these people. Hey, remember the favor I did you, discounting the debt? I'm in need now. How can you help me? Do you see what he's doing here? There's, there's this clever plan that he has in place. So he goes, it gives two examples of reduction of the debts here in verses 5 through 7. The first one owes the master olive oil, commodities here, 900 gallons worth of olive oil. It's a, he gives them, he says, okay, 50% right off. If you, right now, in this bill here, let's make it 450. What do you say? Instead of 900. But let's do it quickly. Here's the deal with money. Getting rich quick schemes are rarely good, right? Getting out of debt quick schemes are rarely good. So I find it interesting, you know, hey, sit down quick. I've got today, order today, you know, on these deals you get on the cable TV, you know, shopping network. If you do it today, do it quick. Sit down and do this. What is he doing? Well, he says, you've got a chance to rewrite the bill, but you've got to do it now. So I'm doing you a favor here. Then he goes to the next person, wheat. 1,000 bushels, 30 tons of wheat. Let's, say, let's make it 800. What do you say? Do it quickly. Rewrite your own bill here. Think about wheat for a little bit. When I was doing some research on this, they said to, to wheat and getting it to where it's usable uh, as a commodity took 8 to 10 years. Includes the growing time. You've got to grow it. Then you've got to harvest it. Then you've got to thresh it on a threshing floor. Then you've got a win- winnowing process to get it down to the grains of wheat, right? That's a long time, eight to 10 years of labor here, and he's just gonna be helping this person just to write it off. All the, some of the commentaries came up with this. They said the reduction of both of these bills would have amounted to about the same, about 500 denarii, or about 20 months wage. So these two, you get a chance to write off a bill that you owe somebody that's worth 20 months wage. Would you do it? I think I would. And I'd do it quickly too, right? So he's doing them a favor. Sometimes debts were canceled due to famine or to death of a family member. There were times where debts were canceled, but this is not that. This is the manager embezzling his master. This is the manager making the debtors compliant in his scheme. They're writing the bill here. They're making the change. So they're now involved in it. He's bringing them in. But he's indebting the debtors because he knows that he's going to need some help down the road. He's looking ahead into his future 
and he's going to get some help from these guys. So we get to verse 8a. The accounting day comes. The master calls this manager in, and Jesus says he commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He didn't imprison him, which he probably should have done, really. He didn't chastise him. He didn't send him off to a far country or something like that. He commends him. He says, good job. You acted shrewdly. Now, why? Why did he do that? Why did he commend? There were, there's different views. Here's some of the different options that were put out there. One view is that in giving discounts, the manager had actually just excluded his commission from the bills. So he had just sliced off what would have come back to him that he had put on top of his master's bill. And so in reality, he was just giving the master the money that was due him. I don't see that in the passage. For one thing, the amount owed is too excessive. He's doing more than just cutting off the little bit that he would have kept anyway. He's cutting into his master's money very clearly. So that's, that, that option doesn't work. Another view that I read was the debts were hard to collect, and by reducing the amounts, the manager provided a sudden influx of cash. So, you know, these debts maybe have been sitting out there for years, and so by doing this, by cutting them down and getting the commodities, he was able to give the master something, a sudden influx now of cash that he didn't have prior. Again, I don't see that of a wise manager managing his own money to know that it had been cut in half or approximately. He probably wouldn't have been too excited. We're actually given the reason in, in the context. It says because he had acted shrewdly. What does the word shrewdly mean? It means clever, canny, perceptive, far-seeing, wise, all of those things, far-seeing and wise. He was clever in a very practical way. What his master was saying to him, not agreeing with his methods, but he was saying, you know what? You've acted in a far-seeing, practical, in some ways wise way. Interesting. So that's where the parable ends. Okay, now Jesus is going to take that story, very interesting story, and he's going to teach his disciples some application. So the second part is the principles that we can learn from the story. That's the second part of verse 8 down through verse 13. Let's read the rest of the story. For the people, this is Jesus speaking now. So he told the parable, talks about the man, manager commending him for acting shrewdly, and then Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Hmm? Wow, that's a loaded verse, isn't it? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Hmm. Verse 9, 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you will love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Wow. So there's some things that Jesus wants to teach his disciples based on the parable that he just told. There's some things that we can apply to our lives. He starts off with an observation at verse 8 there, the second part. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with matters of this life than children of the light, than believers. Do you find that to be true, that people who don't know God, maybe as a rule if you've watched it out there, are better at handling issues of this life sometimes than those who know Christ? those who are children of the light. That's us. That's believers. Do you find that to be true? Sometimes I find that Christians don't do a really good job of dealing with things in this life. They don't think ahead sometimes. Sometimes unbelievers have a real sense of how to invest wisely, how to think about future, how to think about what's coming down the road. Part of that is because this is it. In their line of thinking, this, this is all we have, so, you know, better make good use of it, right? Whereas Christians, you know, we know we have eternity. This isn't all there is. But Jesus is saying, you know, it would be good to make good use of our resources now as well as think about the future, and eternity, and storing up things in heaven. Do both well. In verse 9 is principle number 1. Um, Jesus is going to use this parable as both a com- uh, comparison and a contrast. In the first principle, in verse 9, he says, I want you to be just like that manager. Hmm? Really? In principles 2 through 4, I don't want you to be like him. In fact, I want you to be unlike the manager. Jesus is not saying we're to follow his sinful behavior, obviously not, but there are things we can learn from him, both negatively and positively. So, principle number one in verse nine, invest in eternal enterprises that result in the salvation of individuals. Look at verse nine. It's an interesting verse. Use worldly wealth. Use resources here, now, to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, when is our worldly wealth gone? When we die. Can't take it with you. Or maybe it's lost in this world. Maybe you go bankrupt, okay? It's a temporal thing. That's why it's worldly wealth. But when it's gone... When this life is over, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
In a sense, what Jesus is saying is use your money to win friends for Christ. How's that? Use temporal wealth just like the bad manager went out and he made friends, right? Why? Because he needed dwellings. He needed a home when he was going to lose his job, when he was going to be homeless. Temporal dwellings. Jesus is saying be just like him. Use resources that you have today for the purpose of winning people to Christ. Eternal purposes, eternal dwellings. It's the picture of literally when you enter heaven, friends up there welcoming you in. Friends that came to know Jesus Christ. Maybe because of how you use your resources here. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And they're there to welcome you into eternal dwellings. Wow. Use your resources to win people for Christ. The manager had used his financial resources to make friends for himself. So Jesus says, as disciples, look for ways to use your finances to make friends for Jesus Christ. Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3. I used this passage a week or two ago. It's a beautiful one from the Old Testament. Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. There's resurrection. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, those who are shrewd, if you can use that word, will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Leading others into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have so little time on this earth, temporary resources available to us. How are we stewarding those and using those? How about putting them to use for God's kingdom? How about looking for ways to invest money in such a way as to bring others into relationship with Christ? That's such a beautiful thought. How can we do that? How can we do that as a church? And I, I thought of some examples. Um, in fact, the other day we were working through our budget here for CBC. Phil Rankin mentioned this, and I thought it was really good. He said, you know, whenever you think of a ministry in a church, it can be Awana, it can be nursery, it can be, you know, youth ministry, any ministry, men's, women's, etc. Think of it in three areas in order of priority. Number one, priority number one is people. That is the most important priority because that, they are the ones that go to heaven. Priority number two, program. Investing your budget money into programs because programs reach people, right? But people are still more important. And then finally, the third one, property. Buildings, they're important. Elevators, important. But they're third because above them are programs where people can hear about Jesus and then investing in people's lives, priority number one. That's it. Some examples for us, giving to our local church. That's a good way to invest in the kingdom of God for the purpose of bringing others to Christ. How about giving to send a child or a youth to camp? 
do that. That's a great use of our resource. They can hear the gospel there. Supporting seminaries, places where pastors get trained so they can go out and lead churches. That's a good. How about missionaries? Supporting our missionaries who are sharing the gospel abroad. That's a beautiful way of resources. Gideons, people who give of their time to distribute the word of God and to talk to people on the streets in all over the world. That's a good use of our resources for welcoming people in. That's a beautiful thing. How about on an individual level? How about this? How about investing money to take an unsaved friend out to lunch? You know, I love, as a pastor, I love to go out to lunch with my Christian brothers and sisters. I really do. And that's important, and I will continue to do that. But I need to think outside the box a little bit here. Maybe that money would be better spent inviting an unsaved friend to go out to lunch with me. You know, there's this joke with pastors is, I'll pray you pay type deal. As a pastor, using my resources, I'll pray and I'll pay. How's that? That's a good use of my resources to bring somebody in to the fold. So principle number one, investing our Investing in eternal enterprises that result in the salvation of individuals. There it is, Jesus says. So they're there welcoming you in to the door. There's a song, Ray Bolts, 1988. Some of you that are my age are shaking your head. Thank you for giving to the Lord. Do you remember that song? It was just called Thank You. Here's a couple words. And as I say these lyrics... The melody is probably going to be going through your head. It was in mine. The minute I started, minute I heard, started thinking about this, this was the first song that came to my head. Here's the lyrics. It says, I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One morning when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church. His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, as far as the eye could see, each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, but heaven now proclaims. There it is. Ray Bolts, thank you for giving to the Lord. It's a great song uh, that some of you remember. Principle number two in verse 10, it's not about what I have. It's not about the amount. It's about my character. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with a whole bunch. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. There's an axiom that Jesus is presenting here. He's saying faithful people, trustworthy people, honest people, are that way whether they have a little, whether they're very poor, or whether they're very wealthy. It doesn't matter. It's not 
what you have, it's who you are in your character and your heart. The same thing, the opposite is true. Unfaithful people are unfaithful, whether they have a little or a lot, because it comes out of our heart. It's our character. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. This is Paul speaking. We're servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. I have a trust, Paul says, that's been entrusted to me by the Master, and that is to reveal the truth of the gospel to you. That's my job. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We've all been given a trust. Finances, relationships, our body. Guess what? Our body is not our own. We've been given this body to take care of and to manage. Our Christian ministries, that's a trust that's been given to us. So what is the number one requirement, Paul says, in all of these areas? It's faithfulness, being trustworthy, being faithful, whether it be a ministry, whether it be your finances, whether it be taking care of your body. Those are all things that have been given you, entrusted to you by God. So take care of them. Trust is important when it comes. When we talk about money, trustworthiness, integrity is critical. The next principle, number three in verses 11 and 12, is simply this. Handle money carefully. Handle it in a trustworthy manner. And he gives a couple examples in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 It says, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you're not faithful in handling money, things of this world and possessions down here, God's not going to reward you with spiritual responsibility because you haven't been faithful with the trust that He's given you. Finances is a spiritual issue. Money is a spiritual issue. We want to put it in the sacred-secular divide thing and go, money's over here and church and all that stuff's in the sacred file and money and sex and everything else is kind of over here in the secular file and they're divided. Jesus doesn't let us do that because he says everything's related here. My call is upon all these things in your life. And so, being trustworthy with our finances, being trusted with true riches, the things that are really important, we need to show ourselves faithful here if we're going to be entrusted with the things that are really important in ministry. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 5, and we looked at this a little bit downstairs in Titus chapter 1. When we talk about church leaders, elders is the passage here, and deacons later on in this chapter, But it says the overseer, the elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. That's a beautiful word. A friend to strangers. That's what that word really means. Able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So one of the requirements, well, a couple are managing our finances. As an elder here at CBC, and it should be required of me, if I am dishonest and not handling money well, then what gives me the right to get up here and preach a sermon, right, on handling money well? If I can't be trusted with how I handle finances, how can you trust me as a leader of this church, right? It only... So managing our finances, not being a lover, doesn't mean I don't have money. Nothing wrong with money. Talk about that a little bit. But how do I manage it? Because we're stewards of God's Word. We need to be careful. A couple things here for churches. We are responsible to model proper use of finances and our resources that we have. We need to be careful in handling them so we don't succumb to the seductive power of money and the distortion of values that comes with that. It's easy to get sucked in a little bit. We need to be careful that we don't give in to the seductive power of money. We also need to be careful not to portray our financial health as a sign of spiritual, spiritual success. And the opposite. Lack of financial health is a sign of spiritual failure. That isn't necessarily true, is it? I can be following God. I can be faithful to Him. I can be doing what He asked me to do and loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and be dirt poor. On the other side, I can be totally disregarding God in my life. And we can be doing this, you know, and all that and be incredibly wealthy and being blessed my socks off, right? So the two aren't necessarily interrelated that tightly. So we have to be careful of making those kinds of assumptions. Verse 12, another principle, how do we handle this money carefully? It's just a simple little, if you have been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you... Who will give you property of your own if you've not been trustworthy? Sorry. So you've been squandering someone else's property. That's the story of the manager, isn't it? He had not been faithful in handling his master's property. So why would you be trusted then with property that is your own? If we're not faithful with other people's things, then we're not fit to handle our own. It's a basic principle, isn't it? There's accountability in finances. But what Jesus is pointing to, and I think this needs to be brought out, is that everything is his property. Oftentimes we think in terms of I own this, I own this is mine, it's it's mine, property is all, you know, money, everything is me. When you look at scripture, that's not just not true. And there's an incredible passage. In 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 14, this is David, who the Lord had told him, David, you are not going to be the man to build my temple. That had been David's passion, that had been David's desire, and God said, your son Solomon will get to do that, but you will not. However, David, I'm going to allow you to take a part in collecting resources for the building of the temple. And that's the account here in 1 Chronicles 29. 
Now listen to what it says here. It says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the majesty, and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are we, my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything, everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. All we're doing, God, is simply giving back to you what's yours already. And that's the truth. It's not my property, it's his. But there is property that is mine. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There's temporal property that we have here on earth, things that are given to us by God. We don't own it. He does. We're to be good stewards. But when it comes to eternity, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, there's going to be rewards that are given to us, and they are due us. That's an interesting term there. Things that we have done, and we earn them. We have them for all eternity. That's what real property is. It being entrusted with the real property not the temporal stuff, the rewards for serving our Lord here on earth. Principle number four, I can't serve two masters, God and money. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Good combination. Serving God and being content. That's beautiful. For we brought nothing into the world, and guess what? We're going to take nothing out of it. Only people, souls, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there it is, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Beware. The love of money is there. It's a trap. It can be a very deceitful thing. Money is neutral. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. But the love of money is the problem. Jesus says true disciples need to make an either-or choice between serving God and serving money. No one can serve two masters. Now, what's interesting, it's not about me because I can serve two masters. I can be double-minded. I can, at one moment, serve God and at one moment be over here doing something totally different. That, that's the old man in me. But it's not about the servant, it's about the masters. What Jesus is saying is God and money are diametrically opposed to the love of money, sorry. The love of God and the love of money are diametrically opposed to each other. So you have to make a choice. 
Money can be that idol in my life if I let it be. You can't love money and be engaged there and follow the great commandment, which says love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I love money, I'm giving my heart, mind, soul, and strength over here to the money, and I'm becoming selfish. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. So you can't serve two masters because they're diametrically opposed to each other. You have to make a choice. And I'm going to close with this quote because it's beautiful. Arthur Pink is a great writer. He was a teacher in England and in the United States. And I just wanted to end with this quote. And it's kind of in King James language, and it makes, but it's beautiful. Listen to what he says. He does not say, Christ, we must not or we should not serve money or God. He says we cannot serve God and mammon, which is money. We cannot love both or hold to both or hold by both in observance, obedience, attendance, trust, and dependence, for they are contrary the one to the other. God says, my son, give me your heart. Mammon, money, says, no, give it to me. God says, be content with such things as you have. Mammon says, grasp all that you ever can that you canst. Money, money, by fair means or by foul, money. God says, defraud not, never lie, be honest and just in all thy dealings. Mammon says, cheat thine own father if thou canst gain by it. God says, be charitable. Mammon says, hold thy own. This giving undoes us all. Don't give away your money. God says, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about everything. Mammon says, worry about everything. Be careful for everything. So the question is, which God are you listening to? Which God are you going to serve? That's the real question. And I also, thinking about today in my resources, handling how can I use what God has blessed me with to bring other people into a relationship with Him? How can I use my money so that when I get to heaven, there's going to be people there that know Him as a result of my testimony or my ministry? Think about that one a little bit. That's a profound thought, and I'll just end on that one. Thanks. Thanks.